Chapter 9. So what can you do? My purpose in writing this book is to help Christians love people well, particularly those who are struggling. If you are still reading, I will assume most of you profess to be Christians. If you do not, hopefully the material is still helpful. Either way, I hope you have been convinced, I have convinced you of the value of understanding the effects of adversity and of the value of being trauma-informed. In this chapter, I will give you some tools, suggestions, and practical guidance about how to apply the material in this book. One of the important first steps is thinking about yourself. Knowing how your past may explain some of your thoughts or behaviors should help you understand yourself better. Some of your own behaviors that may annoy you or surprise you or mess up your relationships may make a lot of sense when you think about where they might have come from. Earlier, I gave examples of what survival mode may look like. In this section, I will give examples and ways you can respond. Before diving into specifics, I want to share a general tool that I often use with children, but it can also be effective with adults. It's called the hand model of the brain. I use this to help people be aware when they are in survival mode. We call that flipping your lid, and you will see why in just a moment. Remember, much earlier in the book when I talked about the lower survival part of your brain and the upper thinking part of your brain? This is a reminder of how we use the lower part of our brain when we are stressed. Hold up your hand, like in the following picture. Pretend that your thumb is the amygdala, that fire alarm, the survival part of your brain that is down in the middle of your brain. Tuck your thumb in and fold your fingers down over it. Your fingers represent the upper thinking part of your brain. With your fist closed, like the far right picture, this shows what your brain is like when you are calm. You can think, problem solve, do your homework, or write your grocery list. But if you are triggered by a stressor, boom, the fingers fly open, that lower part of your brain turns on, and the upper thinking part of your brain turns off. Your fight, flight, or freeze responses kick in. We call this flipping your lid. You can use this to think about your own thoughts and behaviors, but you can also use it as a way to help others understand theirs, even little kids. Once someone understands this, they can more easily recognize when they are experiencing strong emotions. If it is a child, the child may need an adult to talk them through closing those fingers of their brain, calming down. Children need a nurturing person to help them figuratively fold their fingers back down. This might be done by kissing a boo-boo, giving a hug, or speaking some reassuring words. As an adult, you also may need to reach out to a supportive person when you are in survival mode, but you can often learn to do this yourself. Sometimes just knowing that this is what is going on in your own head helps you to calm down. Calming down in the moment is helpful. But to truly help someone reduce the time they spend in survival mode, the root of the survival response will need to be dealt with. Helping the person to feel safe and worthy of love can give you the opportunity to begin walking with them. You can support them as they begin to deal with whatever is causing them to get in survival mode. By looking at yourself through your new trauma-informed lens, you can cut yourself some slack and possibly develop some ways to change those behaviors. For example, if you realize you tend to get angry or avoid things, you may be able to talk yourself and say, wait, brain, there is not any danger here. Let me think about my response before I lash out or run away. 
I know that sounds simplistic and almost silly, but taking a minute to think is almost always a good thing, unless, of course, you see a real bear. If you do begin walking alongside people who are struggling in life, and I hope you do, many of those people will be functioning in survival mode for many of the reasons I've presented. They will differ in how easily and how often they kick into survival mode, though. Some of that is because of differences in events that have happened, but it will also differ depending on how those events were experienced. Some people are more resilient to stressful things, and others, not so much. You, as a believer, know that dealing with the root of these responses can only completely be accomplished as someone acknowledges their sin and need for a Savior. It is through understanding Jesus' sacrifice, his blood covering their sin, and his forgiveness, they can know they are loved, forgiven, and worthy of love, and that he can protect them and heal them. That is why, as you walk with people, it is so important to pray for their salvation and healing and to help them understand the gospel. If someone already professes Jesus as their Savior, but they are still struggling, you can keep pointing them lovingly to the truth of the gospel. You want this for them because you want what is ultimately best, but there are ways to respond that are helpful whether or not someone surrenders to Jesus. You should not limit your love and care only to those who are Christ followers. The love and care you show will be planting seeds of the gospel and will be helpless and will be helpful regardless. As someone begins to feel safe with you, trust you, and realize that you care, their tendency to fall into survival mode should lessen. At that point, you may be able to help them relearn skills or strategies that they missed early on, or you may be able to logically help them to see the value in making healthier choices than they have made in the past. In the following examples, I will give you some ways to respond in the moment. There is no way to give an exhaustive list to memorize, but hopefully you can begin to use your trauma-informed lens in your own situations after reading these examples and possible responses. For simplicity, I've listed some of the effects of past trauma that I talked about earlier in the book. Re remember, these are all the evidence of someone being in survival mode. So, trying to talk rationally to them out of their belief or into a different emotion is not likely to be very effective. Hopefully, these ways of responding will be helpful. Impulsivity. Impulsivity can take many forms and is best addressed during times when the person isn't in survival mode. You may be able to help someone find healthier ways to function by talking calmly when a person's upper thinking brain is engaged. If someone has suffered from impulsive decisions, relapsing on substances after being sober for a while, getting pregnant because of an impulsive evening with a stranger, signing a lease they can't afford, they may come to you for help with the consequence of impulsivity which can give you a chance to talk through it. This is a good place for expressing lament. You can say, this must be so hard. I hurt with you as you were going through this. Once you have gained their trust, you can ask something like, do you see yourself having trouble because you don't stop to think about things sometimes? It is important to ask such questions out of genuine concern and wanting better for them. Such a question can backfire if they feel they are being scolded. If they say they do see that, you could ask if they want to help them work through or on their impulse control. Trying to figure out why they are being impulsive might be helpful. They want to buy things because they never had many possessions growing up. 
they were neglected and no one ever taught them to delay gratification. Their brain was built around stress and the behavior control part of their brain is underdeveloped. No matter the reason for the impulsivity, some patient coaching from someone they trust is likely to go a long way. Anger and aggression. First, if someone could potentially injure you, you should plan for your own safety first. You can't help them if you are injured and unavailable. If someone is likely to use a weapon or is much more powerful, help may be required from law enforcement or others. When an adult or child is angry or aggressive, you should de-escalate the situation. De-escalating is a term meaning to calm someone down, diffuse tensions, or reduce the chance of harm, injury, damage. Talking calmly, being genuine as you acknowledge that they are upset, and sometimes just being with them as they calm down can be helpful. Deep breathing is helpful, but suggesting it could make someone angrier if they feel like you are babying them. If you have gained their trust and possibly have talked about the benefits of deep breathing when the person is not in survival mode, you could suggest it. One of the most helpful things when someone is angry or aggressive is to keep calm yourself. This is sometimes called modeling behavior. Just as you may model the behavior you want to see in your children or others, you can model responding calmly. Someone who is aggressive because they are scared needs a a quiet, reassuring voice not someone who will firmly put them in their place. See the exchange below. A teenage girl had just been placed in foster care and had moved in with a couple that she just met a few hours before. Her caseworker told her that she cannot keep the phone that she has been using and that the new foster parents will have to get her a different one. Insecure children are often very attached to their phones because that is how they stay in contact with the people they know especially if they are often moved from place to place. The girl begins screaming at the counselor, the caseworker, and the new parents, saying that she is going to leave and begins knocking books off of a nearby shelf. There are a couple of ways to handle this. One of the adults could explain that there are rules in the house and that she has to obey them now, and that this behavior is unacceptable. That is likely to escalate her anger. Alternatively, One of the adults could calmly talk to her and say that they know how important the phone is to her and that it's scary not having contact with people she knows, even if it's for a short time. They could offer to make sure she has a way to contact people if she needs to do so. It would be most helpful not to say anything about the yelling or the books, but calmly ignore that part of the behavior because she was likely trying to show that she was having very big feelings that she didn't know how to express. Put yourself in the place of the girl in the story above. It must be very scary to be taken from your home. And if things have been bad enough for you to be removed, the time before that has likely been scary too. It is a time when calm, loving care can be very helpful. Withdrawing. Just as that quiet, caring voice can be helpful to someone who is aggressive, that same quiet voice can woo someone who is withdrawn. Often, people withdraw because being with people physically or emotionally has been painful. The goal here is to become a safe person for them, seeking someone out of spending time with them, helping them learn that you are trustworthy and that you care about them is often the best way to pull someone in. Tread lightly, because attempts to pull someone in can also scare them away. 
You might begin by just being in a place where you know they will be. You could make casual conversation. Perhaps you could create a helpful reason to be with them. You could offer a ride or pick up something you know they like and take it to them. If you go for a ride, it is fine not to talk or just talk a little. Try to study them and follow their lead. Just spending time together can help someone learn to trust you, as long as you are trustworthy. It's best not to tease someone too much because often traumatized or withdrawn people have difficulty knowing whether you are kidding or not. If the person begins to talk, let them tell you things as they want. Often, someone who doesn't trust people will tell minor things at first to test the waters and see how you react. Then, gradually, they will test with bigger and bigger things. Don't act shocked or downplay what they say. Be calm and supportive. I often tell people who want to be helpers to practice controlling their facial expressions so they don't scare a person off who is sharing hard things. Try not to interrogate someone or jump to fixing things. As a relationship is developing, natural curiosity goes a long way. Remember, being with and listening are therapeutic. Hypervigilance. Remember, hypervigilance is when someone is overly aware of their surroundings and people's behavior. Often, the persons may, re may perceive threat where there really is no threat. It is important to help someone feel safe before you challenge them on whether threats are real. Sometimes, hypervigilance in people who have been physically abused shows up in them wanting to be able to see the exit or be near the exit. They may be anxious about unknown sounds or hearing footsteps in a hallway and not knowing who is there. You could say, it seems like you are really good at being aware of your surroundings. Is there anything I can do to help you feel more at ease? Is anything making you uncomfortable? Recognizing this and talking about it straightforwardly rather than shaming them or downplaying it can put them at ease. Once they are reassured, you may be able to talk to them about real versus perceived threats. It may take being with people in a place or with people several times to believe that they are safe. Sometimes people who have been abused watch for very slight facial expression changes because those expression changes may signal impending danger from an abuser. If you suspect that someone may be misreading your expressions or even if you just want to acknowledge the possibility, you can mention it. You could say something like, sometimes my face is really expressive and people think I'm thinking something that I'm not. Please feel free to ask me if my facial expressions ever concerns or confuses you. This is actually a true story from our church plant. Acknowledging that it was happening and having a chat about it restored a very strained relationship. Conduct problems. Conduct problems overlap a lot with aggression and impulsivity. These problems may result from wanting things, not learning to delay gratification, or having underdeveloped behavioral control. Also, acting out in different ways could be attempts to get attention. If someone was neglected as a child, they may have had to act out to be noticed. If the person may be acting out to get attention, you can try giving the person attention before they act out. Helping them to feel seen and heard can meet that need. Gradually, new habits can form. It can be challenging to go seek out a person to give them attention, so it is helpful if you plan intentionally. Think of a child that misbehaves a lot. Probably the last thing a teacher wants to do 
is go spend time with the child while they are not misbehaving. He or she would much rather enjoy the moment of quiet and peace. However, investing some attention may make their job much easier going forward. Remember that you are trying to capitalize on strengths. A way to give that attention might be to ask the person to help you with something or compliment them on something you know they are good at and ask them to tell you about it. I can remember when I was in elementary school, our teacher had a couple of students she would send to the lunchroom to get her a glass of water. It was quite the privilege to be one of the water retrievers. I can remember there was a boy in my class who acted out often. One day, the teacher asked him to go get her water. He beamed, and he stopped acting out. I can't say it was because he was seen and given a privilege, but it sure looked like it. Criminal behavior is an extreme example of conduct problem. Criminal behavior is often connected to substance use, which I talk about below. The relationship among trauma, substance use, and legal trouble is a very complicated but also very common. I will talk briefly about it in this book, but we have more resources on the Uplift Appalachia website, upliftappalachia.org. If someone has committed crimes, it is okay to talk about. Some people may feel uncomfortable because it seems like prying, or they may feel that someone will feel judged if you talk about their criminal history. Trust me, they most likely feel judged whether or not you talk about it. If you talk about their criminal history in a non-judgmental way, they will feel less likely to be stigmatized than they would if you didn't talk about it. As I've mentioned, I've done lots of volunteering and mentoring with participants of a state prison diversion program. I have gotten to know many of the clients and talked at length about their experiences. They know that I am not shocked by what they tell me. They know I don't condone criminal behavior, but they know that I care about them in spite of their past behavior and I want good for them. I have learned a lot from them, and they have learned some from me along the way. Being controlling. It makes sense that people will try to control things if their lives have been dangerous or unpredictable. But it can be very challenging to interact with controlling people. This is a time when you may need to do some of, the, some of your own deep breathing and remind yourself that the person may be doing the best they can and that they are scared. It may sound strange, but working toward having the person trust you is the most helpful thing in this situation. This doesn't mean that you give over all control, but it certainly means you shouldn't wrestle for control. Keeping your word Explaining things clearly, even being on time, can help a person feel less likely to have control things. As you gain their trust, you can begin to talk to them about their need for control. You can say something like, I know things in your life have been very unpredictable. I understand why it makes you more uncomfortable, more comfortable to be in control. I hope you can find some safe places and safe people where you can trust others to take on some things. It's got to be tiring. That might get them started talking. Then you can problem-solve ways to be less controlling. I often tell people work, work, what works for me. I know that God is running the universe perfectly, so I don't have to. And we wouldn't want me to anyway. How do I get to that point, you might ask? I tell people that I am a recovering control freak. And I can share a true testimony you're welcome to share. I have always wanted to know what is coming. Know what the schedule is. Know that I have enough money to pay bills. No, no, no. At some point, 10 or 15 years ago, I experienced one of the reach, one of the 
reaching the next level in my faith moments that really helped me in that arena. I truly believe God just helped me to see that he is sovereign, in control, and running the universe, and because he knows everything, not just the little part I see, he can take care of me and take care of everything. I have to preach to myself often that he can take care of me and everything else. I know that I can just surrender everything to him. I ask for him to guide me to do only whatever is my part to do. I have experienced unbelievable peace since then. I do still try to take control back here and there, but those times are getting much shorter and I do repent and let it go. Substance. Substance use is so interrelated with childhood adversity, trauma, and all of the behaviors above that it needs its own training materials. Uplift Appalachia has those, so I encourage you to visit upliftappalachia.org to find additional helpful materials. Since there are more in-depth materials available, I will just address this as a behavior caused by past trauma and address how to interact with someone who is using substances problematically. As I, as I have said earlier, a person may be using substances to quiet their brain that is in survival mode or to take away bad memories or because the feeling that substances give, give them feels like love. Regardless of the reason, you know problematic substance use isn't fixing anything and is likely causing more problems. So how do you respond? We know from years of data that telling someone just to say no to drugs does not work. That may even want to stop, but it isn't that simple. I believe that to address substance use issues, you have to address the reason someone is using. Some of us at Uplift Appalachia have been working on research around the idea that caring interpersonal connection may cure addiction. If people really are using substances in order to feel what love feels like, perhaps increasing the love someone experiences will reduce their need for substances. If you are interested in learning more, you can read some of our other publications. So, what are the practical ways to interact with someone who struggles with substances? As I said, saying stop is not usually helpful, but you can tell them you love them and want them to be free from using substances. Just like I have said several times above, speaking truthfully, calmly, and expressing care is helpful. Hopefully, the truth that you tell them is that you always want good for them. Sometimes the truth may be that you have to take a break from interacting with them to rest for a time. The truth may be that you will take them to any rehabilitation facility in the country and write to them often. Most of my research in ministry is in the area of addiction, and I continue to hold on to James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, praying for God's wisdom because there are no one-size-fits-all answers. The right answer can change from person to person and even from situation to situation with the same person. I do have a favorite addiction-related resource. There is a very helpful YouTube channel called Put the Show Down that you can find by searching YouTube or scanning the QR code. The host is Amber Hollingsworth, an experienced addiction counselor who gives extremely practical advice. Some of that advice is for substance users, but most is di directed toward family and friends of substance users. The videos range from around 5 minutes to 25 or 30 minutes. I've listened to many, many of these videos, and all are filled with practical nuggets of wisdom.